questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. Here on the podcast, we chat with experts across many disciplines of science to explore how our interconnected world is being reshaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. Find us on our website at dearpandemic.org. I'm your host, Dr. Malia Jones, hybrid social infectious disease epidemiologist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory and editor-in-chief at Dear Pandemic. This episode was recorded on September 19th, 2020. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Jennifer Beam Dowd. Dr. Dowd is the Deputy Director at the Leverhome Center for Demographic Science and an Associate Professor of Demography and Population Health at Oxford University. Her research looks at links between the social determinants of the human microbiome, between stress and immune function, and most recently, the relationships between age structure and death rates from COVID in different populations. Dr. Dowd is also one of my fellow nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you follow us, you know and love her writing. She wrote a recent post on keeping your nose inside your mask, the importance of the air we breathe in transmission of COVID-19, and the Sturgis Bike Rally. Today, we're opening up the question box and answering questions from our followers. How's it going? (laughs) It's going all right. I'm here in sunny London. It's actually 75 degrees and sunny, which is very unusual, but we do have some storm clouds, I guess, gathering with a pretty steep increase in cases here in the UK that's causing a lot of consternation and worries about a second lockdown. So yeah, dealing with that with kind of a little pit in my stomach about seeing those rising cases here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm real. I was really sorry to hear that. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, You know, we are also dealing with a pretty substantial spike in cases here in Madison still. UW-Madison has a serious outbreak among students, and two of the really big dormitories are on full quarantine, uh, and a third one is under suspicion of having an outbreak, and then more than half of the fraternity and sorority houses are also on quarantine, so it's a pretty bad situation here locally. The good news is that so far, hospitalizations are remaining low, and fingers crossed those quarantines will work, and it won't spread to um, higher risk groups. Yeah, fingers crossed. We're seeing a slow uptick in hospitalizations, but so far, yeah, nothing like it was before. So yeah, yeah, fun times. So I wanna say a huge thank you to our followers who submitted a ton of great questions again this week. We really appreciate all your contributions and we do read all of those questions. We use them to inform our content for the upcoming week. And we also like to tackle some of them here. Um, But we have a lot of new followers who haven't been with us since the very beginning six months ago. And as I was looking through the questions, I noticed quite a few topics that we've already written about. So I wanna just uh, let everybody know they can go to our website, www.dearpandemic.org 
and you can easily search all of our 500 plus posts there. We've covered a lot of ground since we started writing on March 14th from denominators to clinical trials to farts and toilet plumes. I don't know. What's your favorite post so far? Um, I think it definitely was, yeah. Why can I still smell farts through my mask? I yeah. loved that one. That was so good. It's um, both, you know, entertaining and really does help you convey the idea about gas being able to get through, but not virus laden particles of Totally. Yeah. It's such a great example. <laughs> Plus I learned things about farts. I'm, I've learned so much in the pandemic, really. Even more than having young boys. That's impressive. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> All right. So let's get to it. We wish we could answer every question. We're going to just tackle four today. So I've got one for you, Dr. Dowd. Kathleen in Massachusetts asks us, my son tells me that we should follow the example of Sweden. They never really shut down or required everyone to wear masks. They relied on herd immunity and they are now one of the safest countries in the world. Should we be following their example or the example from Denmark where they did a lockdown, but now they are having an outbreak? That is a great question, Kathleen. And it is and a great it, question. Yeah, living here in Europe, I've I've heard about a lot from the beginning because Sweden definitely made some different decisions. Um, than other countries back in the spring as well when cases were rising everywhere. But there are sort of a few misconceptions, I think, both of what you've heard um, from your son and, and kind of more broadly that this idea, first of all, that Sweden did not do a lockdown. It's true that they, they didn't do sort of these, you know, complete lockdowns where people were, were not allowed to leave their homes the way Italy and Spain did, especially um, where you could be fined um, and there was sort of legal sanctions, but they did have what you could almost call lockdown light, um, you know, with a lot of changes in voluntary behaviors. They really called upon people's social responsibility. Um, and the end result was, you know, in some ways similar to other lockdowns where people started working from home for the most part, um, you know, lots of voluntary social distancing. There were actually bans on large gatherings older high school kids and university students did not have school. Um, people over 70 were asked to shield um, and stay home. So they actually did change you know, a lot of things that, that were short of complete lockdown, but they did rely on it being more voluntary. Um, so that's one conception is that they, said they did have sort of a lockdown light, not a complete um, lockdown. And the second misconception is that they you know, are doing better um, if you look at deaths per capita, they've, they've done much, much worse than their Nordic neighbors for going sort of this, this less dramatic route um, in the spring, especially. They had 100 deaths per day at the peak compared to Finland, and in their per capita deaths so far, they've had five times more than Denmark, 11 times more than Norway, you know, who are very similar um, countries that, that are their neighbors. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely not the case that their, their strategy, um, you know, protected their population from hospitalizations and deaths. That's, they've been one of the hardest hit as far as deaths per capita. And the, the next thing I would say is the idea was also if you avoid lockdown that you might protect the economy. But we know that their economy has been hit just as hard um, as their neighbors, for instance, as far as GDP drops and unemployment. And of course, it's a global pandemic, so any country is going to be affected 
by the economy worldwide. Um, so it's not to say that they, you know, their decisions within their country might not have helped. The restaurants and bars did stay open, even though distanced, but the end result was not really protective of their economy compared to other countries that had, you know, a, a stronger lockdown and, and not as many deaths. Um, yeah, it really, I think, highlights how interconnected we all are on several fronts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like we, we assume that each country can make their own decisions as far as that health and, and economy trade-off. And, um, you know, we're really all in this together on both of those fronts. And just the final point, I guess I'll say is this idea of herd immunity was, you know, really popular at the beginning that if we just sort of let this run through the society and especially, you know, maybe try to protect the older people, but if young people can get infected and build up immunity, that will be a more sustainable long-term strategy. Um, and again, what we saw was Sweden actually had very high death toll per capita, but now that we've done some of these seroprevalence studies, which are where we measure blood in the population to see, you know, what the prevalence is of having been infected already, they're, they're not seeing numbers more than six to 10%, which is you know, way far away from what we think herd immunity gave the population protection. So they really, they didn't achieve either goal of saving the economy, achieving herd immunity. All they really got were a lot more deaths compared to comparable countries near them. Um, and I guess the last point, it is true in the last couple of weeks that while we've seen upticks in some European countries, including the UK, you know, Sweden still has kind of leveled off and is more similar to, to Norway and Finland. And Denmark has, you know, seen an upswing in the last couple of weeks. And I would just say I wouldn't read that much into it, you know, yet to say that that Sweden is, is protected. We're seeing, you know, all over the U.S., but also in Europe, sort of different timings of these upticks and kind of lulls in transmission. So there's really no evidence that just because Sweden hasn't seen a big uptick um, yet in the last couple of weeks that it, it has some level of, of protection. So that's, that's kind of the, the story. It's, there's a lot of misunderstandings about how well they might have done. And, and sadly, we won't know for sure until all is said and done, you know, a couple of years from now when we can really look back um, at the pandemic. But there's, you know, so far, there's a lot of regret, I think, in certain circles in Sweden about the way they approached it and just a lot of avoidable deaths so far. Yeah, one thing that I also think about a lot when I consider the approach that Sweden took, I mean, I think a lot about herd immunity in general. Um, and so this idea that we are going to let a, a pandemic just produce some kind of natural herd immunity, I, I found, frankly, terrifying. I don't think any public health person who, who thinks about herd immunity could really wrap their head around that as a prevention strategy, because Absolutely. it will result in a lot of collateral damage, um, by which I mean deaths. Exactly. So yeah, that was- Yeah, we have some scary. good posts on that, that if you do kind of any reasonable back of the envelope math about herd immunity, the, the death toll is, is staggering. So- yeah, that's not how we want to get to herd immunity. That's no, I, and honestly, I mean, you and I have talked about this a little bit back channel, but I don't really know if it would be possible to get to herd immunity that way based on, 
you know, a number of, of uh, sort of timing factors and math, the math of it, I think just doesn't quite add up. So it's anyway, true. yeah, just because we have no idea how long immunity might last. Yeah. And, and if it's not lifetime, then you have people constantly dropping back out of immunity again, which I think it might just be impossible to achieve herd immunity through, you know, quote unquote, natural infection. So yeah, um, it definitely shouldn't be an explicit strategy. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the next question. This one is for you, Dr. Jones. Leslie from Massachusetts has asked, I know that it takes uh, four to 14 days to test positive once exposed to the coronavirus. My question is how soon after being exposed can one become infectious or contagious to other people, um, i.e. shedding the virus? Is it a matter of hours or days? So, so what do you think about that? It's a great question. We all think we've been on a plane or something, you know, how quickly might we, we know right. about that or spread it to other people? It is a really good question. It's, it's really very important for managing the pandemic to understand how this timeline of infection works. So some key points here, once you're exposed to the virus, you know, let's say you, I don't know, let's just say you go to a football game and you're exposed to the virus from the person sitting next to you. What happens next is that it starts making copies of itself inside your cells. And this is what's called the incubation period. So the incubation period starts right away and it can last for between one and 12 days. And the average is three days, but I'll just remind you that average means half of the people have a longer incubation period and half of them have a shorter incubation period. So three days is not like the, the magic number. So within a couple of days, enough copies of that virus have reproduced inside your cells that you start, they start shedding or escaping your body through the droplets that you're breathing out. And at that point you are infectious and you can spread it to other people. So the timing of that, the key feature, one of the key features that has made this pandemic really hard to control is that the infectious period starts before symptoms begin. And so there's this unknown about when, you know, you can't know that you're infectious until you become symptomatic, but you have been infectious already, usually for about a day. So the timing of it is you become infectious a day before your symptoms start, but symptoms start can be anywhere between two to 14 days for, for typical people. And on average, it's five or six days. The safe assumption is that you would become infectious the day after exposure, and that maybe situation could extend for 14 days, right? So that's why we recommend this 14-day quarantine after you've been possibly exposed or definitely exposed. Probably not in the first few hours. I guess that's the good news. Probably not in the first few hours. Yeah, because it does take a while for the virus to get in there. And, you know, it starts making copies of itself. And at first, the number of copies are low. And so you're not, you're not exhaling a lot of virus when you're shedding those droplets. It's the same reason that if you take a PCR test immediately after exposure, you won't test positive, even if you go on to develop infection, because th there just needs to be enough of the virus in there to find I'll also just say that we had some good news about the um, this timeline of infection this week. There was a review in the Annals of Internal Medicine that came out and they reviewed a ton of studies on contact tracing and other aspects of COVID. And they found no cases where transmission was definitively linked to a patient after seven days 
of symptoms. So you stop, it looks like you stop being infectious seven days after symptom onset. So that's new information this week. And it's good news because before that was a big unknown and we didn't, you know, it was hard to put an end date on when, um, when you stop being contagious. I would say it's still on the safe side to, to isolate yourself for 14 days. If you are, um, if you were symptomatic, just in case that, you know, science changes all the time. So that's true. It's also really good news though, because I know some people continue to test positive and are really after the, a long period of illness yeah. and are worried that they're contagious. And this suggests that you're probably not contagious, even right. if, if you have these fragments that continue to test positive in the PCR. Yeah. So that's good. Yes, it is good news. Okay. My next question for you, Jen, is should I still be waiting 24 hours to open my mail? Should I wash down my groceries and my Amazon packages? Should I still remove food from takeout containers and transfer it to plates? It seems like a lot of the information now says that you need prolonged contact with an infected person to become infected. So does that mean I don't need to worry about contact surfaces? Excellent question. And, and we did just um, recently do a post that touched on some of this. So the, the article in the Annals of Internal Medicine that Dr. Jones mentioned reviewed a lot of what we know about transmission. And I guess I'd say, yes, you can probably sell your stock in Clorox wipes if, if you were lucky enough to get in on that in, in February. It, there is sort of a shift in focus from sanitizing surfaces to really being more mindful of the air around you, you know, particularly very close to you who's breathing in your face. But the good news is there's really very little um, evidence, in fact, no solid evidence of any transmission that can be traced to, to surfaces, of sharing of surfaces. And, you know, there were early studies that came out that were sort of these experimental things that I think scared us all about if I blast the surface with a very high dose of virus, you know, how long does that see, can I detect virus? And that's where we got some of this kind of scary data that it lived for three days on cardboard or, you know, whatever that, that study that came out in March that led people, a lot of people to, to set their mail aside and worry about their Amazon packages. But the thing about that study um, that's come out since then is, you know, it was a good, you know, experimental design, but the amount of virus that was put on these surfaces is probably nowhere near, you know, reflective of reality of if, if someone actually touched or sneezed um, on a surface, if they were infected. And it just, we haven't seen any transmission that's happened that way. You'd also have to touch something and then, you know, put it in your, your nose or eyes. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about just the chances of that happening. I mean, in a lab setting that what they did was they took virus that they knew it was there, like a lot of it, and they used a Q-tip to put it on cardboard. And then later they went back to that exact same spot and swapped it off. So yeah, like that, that's not how we deal with our mail, you know, yeah. you don't. <laughs> and they didn't know if it was viable, even though they yeah. could detect it. And we know the half-life, like the good news is this virus does not survive very well outside of, you know, the body or breath, like it, it deteriorates quite quickly. So you know, wash your hands. Like, so if I get mail or groceries, I just unpack them as normal, but I do wash my hands right after. And I think that's the level of precaution that mm -hmm. you need. Um, and, and what this study of transmission did show was that, you know, what we're learning more and more is it really does seem to be about close, you know, close contact and about, you know, sharing, you know, breathing with, with people basically. So distance still matters because if, 
if you think about, you know, when you're out in the cold and you can see someone's breath, you know, the closer you are to them, the bigger that concentration of what's coming out of, of their mouth. So this is why the, the three to six feet rule, you know, does still help us. But we also know that because this is coming out in sort of smaller, not just droplets from coughing and sneezing, but sort of finer aerosols from breathing and talking, that especially in indoor spaces, this can accumulate even if you're more than three or six feet away from people. So that's why we need to be really mindful of ventilation, masks, protect on both sides, the inbound and outbound. And so if you need to invest, you know, your mental health points and, and where do I need to be more concerned, it really should be about the air. Deep cleaning, I think, makes people feel better. It's been called hygiene theater by an, right. uh, a great article. And I think that if you can be sanitary and clean, but, you know, don't shift resources to that, if you could be shifting them to things like ventilation and being outside or better distancing, things like that. So that's what we've learned. And in our infographic that we shared yesterday with the Stay Smart principles, really summarize all those key things about transmission. Keep your space, that distance, masks all the time, indoors especially, the air, keep it fresh and well ventilated, bring in outdoor air where possible, restrict the number of people that you're around, which just lowers the probability that any one person has the infection, and then the time. So this is the 15 minutes, again, is not an absolute rule, but there is evidence that the longer you're, especially in an indoor space with someone, the higher, you know, who's infected, the higher the risk of transmission. So bars, right. restaurants, weddings, these are the things that we've identified as big clusters and risk factors based on this contact tracing. Yeah, and I'll just add that um, those things are cumulative. So the more of them that you can do at once, the better, right? They don't uh, substitute yeah, they for layer. each other. They layer. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was just thinking back to March when I was wiping off all my groceries and uh, it's it's intense. I'm I'm just like, I don't know, I had a moment of delight, like, oh yeah, we've actually learned some things. Now we can do a better job here of putting our energy into the right things, right? It is. Abs yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think there is still a little, we're a little bit behind and some, you know, some schools and things seem a little more focused on the deep cleaning and less on the air. And, and so I think we still need to just communicate that clearly. Yep. Yeah. The priorities should be. I think that Annals article offered some great summary level evidence that hopefully will that yeah. will disseminate. So yeah. It was pretty readable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for your next question? I'm ready. This is going to be our last one. Okay. Yeah. Already. Joseph from Maryland. Thank you, Joseph. As we are in National Preparedness Month, what recommendations would you would you make to create a COVID-19 preparedness kit? How can individuals prepare to quarantine for 14 days? Very, very good question. We're, I mean, we have fires and hurricanes still, but this is sort of a, a new thing we need to learn how to prepare for. Yep. Those of you who know me personally know that I lived in Southern California for almost two decades, and I was a crazy person about earthquake preparedness. I always had an earthquake preparedness kit and I was constantly hounding my friends to put one together too. So I really like this question. The challenge here for preparing to, to get COVID-19 is that someone who has COVID-19 is highly contagious. So if you're living in the same household with them or maybe the same dorm room or something, it's a real challenge to 
be around them and take care of them without getting sick yourself. And so a kit in this case needs to include a couple of elements that you can't put into an earthquake kit. And the first one is prevention, right? <laughs> so you can take care of yourself, take care of your own immune system by getting enough sleep, um, staying hydrated, eating nutritious food, reducing stress, right? Those are all things that, I mean, Jen, you could probably talk a whole separate Q&A on this. This is what you do, but um, those are all things that can help you take care of your own immune system so that if you are exposed, you have a better chance of clearing the virus and not becoming infected. So those are good prevention strategies. And then in addition to that, we can think about the, the preparedness strategies. There's a terrific guide that the American College of Emergency Physicians released, and I will drop a link to that in the chat um, or in the comments right now. It has both tips for uh, preparing and also for taking care of someone who has COVID-19 or taking care of yourself if you have COVID-19. And the elements that they highlight are to plan ahead, uh, figure out where can a sick person isolate within your own home, preferably with their own bathroom, if at all possible. You should make an emergency contact list that could be available to you in case you, in case you need help, in case you need to let people know how you're doing. In terms of physical you know, items that you could get, definitely masks. And I would say now in the United States, at least, KF94 masks are becoming available again. And so that's, that's, a, um, that's probably the type of mask that you would want to use if you were actually taking care of a sick person. That'll yeah, that's this. what I was going to say. That's probably the yeah. safest if you're entering the room of someone who's sick, right? Yep. Uh, N95 mask is, you know, similar in terms of performance, but I'm hearing that the, the KF94 masks are available. Um, I heard Costco has them, so <laughs> I heard they're available again in here in the U.S. Um, so I would suggest a mask and a face shield, and it should be both the people who are taking care of the sick person and the sick person wearing the masks for sure. You could also stock up on supplies like over-the-counter medicines to help manage symptoms. You know, most people who get COVID-19 manage at home. And so, you know, fever and cough are some of the primary symptoms. So you would want to um, stock up on any medications to take care of yourself. And then one great suggestion that I would never have thought of that is in that guide is to pack a hospital go bag. And that would include a cell phone charger, a change of clothes, slippers, toiletries, snacks and any of your own prescription medications. It's such a great idea that I just would never have thought of, especially snacks. I don't, have you ever been in the ER for like six hours waiting to be seen and then like- No, that just reminds me of, of pregnancy to go back. Yeah, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, the same thing. Stuff. Yeah. I have several times gone to the ER and then sat there waiting to be seen and ended up eating dinner out of the vending machine. It's, you know, just a little preparation can go a long way. Yeah. And can then I the last, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the last thing that they suggested was a journal to monitor your signs and symptoms. And then they have a whole list of tips for if you get sick, what are the things like, when do you need to call 911? What are the things that, that would send you to the hospital? It's a really a great guide. So. Okay. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a great resource. I was just thinking, going back to sort of cleaning the air, that one investment that wouldn't fit in a small kit, but to the extent that it's possible to get an air purifier, you know, it would be particularly helpful if someone in your home is sick um, and yeah. you're entering that room, because it can really filter 
those virus particles out of out of the air. So that's probably when it's most valuable if someone's actually sick um, yeah. that you're taking care of. So something else to consider for preparedness. Yeah, I actually I didn't mention that I thought of it, but I didn't mention it because I'm pretty sure that the world is sold out of air filters with the fires. Oh, so, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, these things change, they'll come back in stock. So if you happen to see one, it might, might not be a bad idea to scoop one up. And there um, are some like sort of quick and dirty ones. I've seen do it yourself ones online. Maybe we'll post some links to that where you just cut out a filter and put it on a box fan so we can. Yeah. And that will filter to the air to some extent. I was just going to say, I mean, the other thing you can do is just if that room that you're planning on having as the isolation room, if it has windows that open and you can open those windows, go ahead and do that because that will improve the air turnover, the air exchange in the room. And then you can put a fan in the window and we get a ton of questions about which way the fan should be pointing. <laughs> I don't know if there's like one answer to this question. Joseph Allen probably knows the answer, but in my opinion, the fan should point out because that will shoot all of the contaminated air out of the room reliably and not like further distribute air that might be contaminated right. within the room. We'll look into that because I I might have guessed the opposite because I've heard the emphasis on bringing in the uh, the outside air to dilute. But you know I I don't see why it would not work. Okay, you just described so. Well, this is a great point to end on, which is that even those dirty girls don't know everything. Especially My, aerodynamics, yeah. Especially aerodynamics. <laughs> My second favorite phrase in the whole wide world is, I don't know. My first favorite is yet. So we'll <laughs> no. figure it out. <laughs> we will. We'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, we are out of time for today. Thanks so much for being with us to take questions. We'll see you next week on Saturday morning for more Q&A. And I have put together a podcast of this exact same content. And I will drop the link to that podcast in the comments. We're going to be increasing the, the amount of stuff that goes on the podcast. But for right now, it's just this Q&A, audio only. So if you prefer a podcast, you can check that out. If you have a question, you can submit it in the question box on our website at dearpandemic.org. And while you're there, try searching for a couple of keywords in your question, because we've done a ton of posts on COVID. And we may have already answered it or partially answered it. Absolutely. So. Thanks so much great. for joining me, Jen. Yeah, it was great, great to see you. Thanks. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the I Have Questions podcast from those nerdy girls at Dear Pandemic. If you have a COVID question, you can submit it on our website at dearpandemic.org. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And subscribe to our podcast, I Have Questions, wherever you get podcasts or at anchor.fm slash dearpandemic.